Ladies and gentlemen, good morning. Welcome to Kabbalah and Coffee. I just realized that I had my computer on mute, so if anybody was saying anything, I couldn't hear you until, until now. Can somebody speak online and let me know if I can hear you now? Hello. There you go. You, know, I, you can hear me, now I can hear you. That's, that's what I was not able to hear before. Okay. So you guys are, 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 I can hear you, you can hear me, and everyone here, I hope you can hear me. I hope my mic is, is loud enough. Kidding. All right, so welcome to Kabbalah and Coffee. Today we have a powerful discussion. Hopefully you'll agree. Today's discussion is all about Jewish karma. Jewish karma. I know I wrote something a little bit differently in the email on Friday, but really it comes back to this topic, which we call Jewish karma. So somebody give me a working definition of karma. What does karma mean? Fate. Good mazel. Mazel, fate. Okay, what else? What else is karma? What else is karma? Who's Say it again. David, what goes around comes around. I like that. I like that. What goes around comes around. Excellent. Cause and effect from this life or previous lives. Good. Cause and effect. Excellent. Excellent. So now Judaism and Kabbalah doesn't necessarily believe that one incarnation is directly punished necessarily by you know, a, a previous incarnation. But there is this notion of karma, Jew, of Jewish karma, wherein what we do has an effect. So I, I want to I reference the following, and I'm going to hold up this book for everybody to see. Pirkei Avos, Pirkei Avot, Ethics of the Fathers. Now, what is Pirkei Avot? Let me introduce this, and then I want to read to you one, cha- one, not a chapter, but one Mishnah, maybe two Mishnahs, um, an excerpt or two from the fourth chapter, which we actually studied yesterday in the summer cycle of ethics study. This is, um, this is the chapter four was, was yesterday's chapter. But let me explain first very quickly what this is. So Pirkei Avot is from the Mishnah. What is the Mishnah? I'm glad you asked. The Mishnah is the, one of the first instances of the oral Torah being penned, being put down on paper. So we know the five books of Moses, and we have, in total, 24 Jewish books of Scripture. But in addition to that, there's a whole body of Jewish thought that we know and love as, uh, that we call the Oral Torah, Torah Shabbat Peh. And the, the first instances of Torah Shabbat Peh, of the Oral Torah being written down, is essentially the Mishnah, and then that's followed by the Talmud, which is the great repository of Jewish law. Now, here's the thing. The Mishnah contains 63 tract, uh, tractates, 63 tractates, which, what is a tractate? It's not a word that you hear, you know, necessarily in day-to-day language. Um, what's a tractate? Tractate means a section, a section of the Mishnah, a topic. So you have, for example, there's a topic, there's a tractate called Rosh Hashanah. Can you guess what it's about? <laughs> Rosh Hashanah. There's a tractate called Sukkah. Can you guess what it's about? Sukkah. There's a tractate called Psachim. That might be a little harder. Pesachim, what does it sound like? Pesach. Pesach. Good, it's about Passover. Yeah, it's about Passover. There's a tractate. Those are the holiday tractates. Then there are ones about torts and damages, civil law. There's about um, spiritual pure, ritual purity and impurity. There's, it runs the gamut of Jewish law. 62 of the 63 tractates deal with the law. And one is about going beyond the letter of the law. So 62 tractates will tell you what you have to do. But the 63rd tractate will tell you what you should do, even if you don't have to. And that 63rd tractate 
is this, Pirkei Avot, ethics of the fathers. It's ethics. It's beyond the letter of the law. There's the law, and then there's Lefnim Sadin, which is beyond the letter of the law. So you can, you can get away with the law. I'm, I didn't say get away from the law. I said you can get away by, by doing everything just in accordance with the law. But if you want to be ethical, you want to be a little bit more, you know, a little bit more, whatever, the, whatever however you want to follow that, that phrase, that's where you study Pirkei Avot. Now, traditionally, Jewish communities study Pirkei Avot, Ethics of the Fathers, during the summer. From Passover, at least until Shavuot, six chapters, six weeks. You might say, well, there's seven weeks. Okay, but you start the Shabbat after Passover, because you count seven weeks, right? So you get only six weeks in between. So you do six chapters, one chapter per week. But many have the custom, including Chabad, to study it throughout the summer. So once you finish the sixth chapter, you start again. You do like multiple cycles. And, I, and I'm looking around, and I, I see that some of you have taken Pirkei Avot courses with me in the past. We've done courses. In fact, I have a course that was filmed at Chabad in town, at the old Chabad in town the little house on the prairie, the little house on Ponce, right? And that, who remembers that house? Yeah, all right. So, so, um, you can find it on Chabad.org. Thank you for reminding me why I said that. Yes, you can find that Pierre Gevod course on Chabad.org. Just look for my name. And you, it's actually, if they should video and everything, you get the whole deal. I want to reference the 22nd Mishnah of chapter 4, which again, according to the cycle of study, was yesterday's. Oh, so you study Shabbat afternoon, after Mincha, late afternoon, before the close of Shabbat, traditionally, and yesterday was the fourth chapter. It's probably like the third cycle of chapter 4. Um, and this is kind of what it looks like in the book. By the way, this is highly recommended. If you're looking for a book on Pirkei Avot, highly recommended. It's called Pirkei Avot, Ethics of the Fathers. Kind of anonymous of a name, but that's what it is. It's published by Kahat, the Chabad publisher. It's got classic commentaries as well as a Hasidic interpretation as well. How would you identify it? I don't know. It's a nice big blue book, navy blue with silver text. And it's Stand. Not like the regular Talmud? Uh, no, there's no Talmud on it. There's no Talmud. It's just a Mishnah. So not every Mishnah, not every um, book of Mishnah has a Talmudic exposition on it. Avot does not have. Pirkei Avot does not have a Talmud on it. But it has commentaries. Oh, does it have commentaries. I don't think, I don't know if there's any, any other work that has as many commentaries. I mean, the Torah, but of course, the five books themselves. Anyway, this is what it looks like inside. And I'm going to read to you, so you'll have to take my word for it. I'm just going to read to you the, the Mishnah and give a little bit of commentary on it. So I'm actually going to start with Mishnah 21 because it's a really short mission. It's like a one-liner, and then that's going to lead directly into Mishnah 22. Rabbi Elazar Hakapar said, so this is quoting a Mishnaic sage, a sage from the era of the Mishnah, of the time of the Mishnah, who was known as Rabbi Elazar Hakapar. Great scholar, great, great rabbi, very famous. So he said the following. Envy, and I've quoted this before at Kabbalah and Coffee. Envy, I remember where I was when I said this. It was one of the Zoom one of our Zoom, uh, early, early Zoom Kabbalah and coffees. Anyway, it says like this, envy, lust, and pursuit of honor remove a person from the world. What, dis- what is self-destructive? Three things. Envy, lust, and the pursuit of honor. 
Do we need commentary on this? Well, we have commentary here. Here, Rabbi Yudah Chassid says, I'm going to give you, this book is great because it has, as I said before, it has commentary, so I'm just going to read to you a quick commentary. These three vices, again, envy, lust, and honor, or pursuit of honor, these three vices weaken a person's physical health, driving him from this world, and destroy his spiritual health, his spiritual life, thus driving him from the world to come. So, it's not good here, it's not good there. It's not good physically, it's not good spiritually. Physically, we drive ourselves crazy, right? Envy, right? We look at somebody else, and we say, how come they have it? How come I don't have it? And it physically can hurt us, right? This is the world we live in. We live in an Insta-ready, Instagram world. And part of the challenge with that is that everyone, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a look of perfection that people put out there. And then others look at it and say, how come my life is not so perfect? All right. So that's just one manifestation. Envy's been around before, <laughs> before Instagram. But this is one modern-day manifestation of it, things that we can drive ourselves crazy trying to live up or to, to be someone else and never get there. And it's not only about not getting there, it's just driving ourselves crazy. It's not good for our physical life. Lust, right? Lust, whatever, where, wherever that lust may be found, is also something that, that, that harms the person physically as well as spiritually. And pursuit of honor is the same thing. And then that leads us into Mishnah 22, which is what I wanted to mention, which relates to Jewish karma. He used to say, who's he? The same rabbi, Rabbi Elazar Kapar. So the same rabbi used to say. So it's not a one-time saying, it's something that was repeated. It was one of his go-to ideas. Those, listen, it's very, it's, it's a little bit long, it's, it's very poetic, very powerful. Those who are born are destined to die. Those who are dead are destined to live. And those who live are destined to be judged. Are you with me? Let's do this again. Those who are born are destined to die. What's the meaning of that? Kind of obvious, right? <laughs> right? I mean, I don't know that we need too much commentary on that. Those who are born are destined to die. Okay. That's a fact of life, right? We're born and we, we die. That's it. Those who are dead are destined to live. What does that mean? What do you think that means? Resurrection of the dead. Yeah, resurrection of the dead. Remember we had the resurrection of the dead course? Yeah. I don't mind bringing that course back. I keep on, I, yeah, I keep on doing that joke. All right, all right, all right. Sorry. My apologies. All right. Listen, here's the deal. Um, those who are dead, he says, are destined to live. And as the Talmud says, we quote in the resurrection course, if God can create life from nothing, right? If God can create those who are not alive to be alive, God can't, create, God can't make someone who was alive alive again. It's an easier task, right? What's, what's easier? To, to take nothing and get something or to say, take something and, and develop it into a more, more advanced something? Anyway, I don't think I'm expressing that that so super coherently, but the point is, in a being that never had life, to make that being live is a greater feat than a being that had lived to make it live once again. So therefore, the resurrection of the dead is not as crazy and wild and outlandish as one might think. But here's the third idea. So those who are born will die, those who are dead will live again, and those who live are destined to be judged. 
What does that mean? It means, as the Mishnah continues, that Jewish karma, the idea that what we do has an effect. Right? What we do has an impact. So let's continue inside. The purpose of it all, he says, is to know. In other words, to, to learn from others, to make known to others. So it's to learn and to teach and to become aware through meditation that God is God, that God is the fashioner. In the Hebrew, it's yotzer. Yotzer means, yotzer is like former, not former like the past one. For, like when you create a form, yotzer is like create a form. Sorry? Like the, golem. the golem had a form. Yeah, it's like great forming something. So God is the former, the fashioner here. He is the creator. He is the discerner. He is the judge. He is the witness. He is the plaintiff. And he will hereafter sit in judgment. Okay? I'm going to continue inside. Um, blessed is he. Blessed is God before whom there is no iniquity nor forgetting, no partiality nor bribery, and know that all is according to the reckoning. Everything is according to the reckoning. What does that mean, everything is according to the reckoning? So here we have two interpretations, which I'm going to read to you. So one, minor infractions, which individually are not severe, are reckoned as a major offense if repeated numerous times. So a little bit, a small thing repeated often enough becomes a larger thing. I'm trying to think of an example. It's like, I don't know, like a little hole in your cup. It's a little hole. Okay, but over time, it's going gonna, it's gonna to drain a lot of liquid, right? And so I will take a sip of my water here. In a cup that, hope, that thank God, has no hole, because that would be super awkward for all of us. Okay, um, next. That's Bartonura. That's the interpretation of the Bartanura about the meaning of everything is according to the reckoning. What does it mean? Reckoning that little things add up to a big thing. Alternatively, the Rambam says, Maimonides says in his commentary on, on this Mishnah, that each person is, is judged according to their nature and capabilities. Vedasha Kolafiachajba means that no two people are judged the same, even if they did the same thing, for example. So two people, they do the same thing. They're not judged the same way. Why? Because everybody is held to a different standard based on who they are, what their potential is, what their capability is, what they didn't know, what they should know, what they, you know, everyone's judged differently. It's not a one-size-fits-all situation. And this is referring, obviously, to the judgment of Hashem, to Hashem's judgment. God's judgment is not one-size-fits-all, but understanding where we are, who we are, and where we should be. I'm going to continue inside. So the Mishnah continues. It's a long Mishnah, and it's actually the last, I don't know if I mentioned this, it's the final Mishnah of chapter 4. So it's the last, the last, uh, last few pieces over here. It says, Let not your evil inclination assure you that the grave will be a refuge for you. Somebody might say, well, let me live and do whatever I want, because when it's over, it's over. Right? Can't catch me now. So he says, let not your evil inclination assure you that the grave will be a refuge for you. For against your will you were fashioned, and against your will were you born. 
Against your will you live, and against your will you die. And against your will you are destined to give an account before the Supreme King of Kings, the Holy One, blessed be He. That's how the chapter ends. So let me explain. We talked about a lot of against your wills, which kind of highlights the fact that life itself was not a choice. I mean, raise your hand if you chose to be born. There you go. I didn't think so. Right? Am I right here? I'm pretty sure I was right. No one was consulted, by the way. I'm waiting for the first lawsuit. I'm waiting for the first lawsuit of a child suing their parents for, for conceiving and birthing them. Oh, there was one? There was one. Where? I heard it on Rabbi Manis. Oh, Manis. Okay, well, there, if, Manis, if Rabbi Manis Friedman says it, it's got to be true. Or it's got to be at least a good story. Huh? Someone sued their parents. Interesting. Yes. What, what about the theory that we actually do choose every aspect of our lives and then there's a, a spirit that we've already met and, you know, the whole thing is like a uh, acorn. Uh, you know, everything happens in its, in its time, but we just forgot it all. Excellent question. Excellent. So, so Yaakov is asking, what about this notion that, that there is this foreknowledge and we do have, have these consultations? So to clarify, and there might be a source that I'm not familiar with, but the source in the Talmud that I think it might be what you're referring to doesn't necessarily put it in the choice of the soul, but it says that there is a, there is a bit of a, um, a, a predetermination about certain aspects of our lives. So it says 40 days before conception, it's determined where this person is going to be, what kind of house, where they're going to, uh, um, like the, 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 the background, I say background, like the, the setting of a person's life, these things are, are, are preordained, so to speak. Um, and Basharit is included in that, one's, one's match is included in that. Um, but I don't know that the soul is given a choice. Like the soul is told, hey, here's a few people to choose from. What do you think? It's more of like the, so the soul is told, or there's some predestination of, okay, this is where it's going to be. This is, this is the house you're going to live in. This is the person you're going to marry. This is, you know, the, the place you're going to live, etc. Are they given a Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. The script, the, yeah, the, the, the ultimate objective is given. But again, these are things that happen on a spiritual level. When we talk about our lives today on, with our consciousness, the question really is, can we tap into that knowledge? I don't know that we can in an obvious way and be like, okay, let me just recall from my memory what I was supposed to do. It's more of like it's in the spiritual subconscious and we live our lives trying to hopefully choose the things that were predestined for us and not, and not mess it up because there is the ability to do that as well. When my son was very little, I think maybe about three, he, he went into his sister's room who was still in a crib and he said to her, do you miss God? Mm, I miss that's, God. That's precious. How could he have known? Yeah, that's very precious. Can I repeat that story for the online crew? Oh, yeah. So Dina Malka mentioned that when her son was three, so she had a three-year-old boy and then a baby girl. So the three-year-old boy walks into the baby's room, to the crib, and I guess you overheard this. The, 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 her little boy said to, 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 the, to the baby girl, do you miss God? I miss God. That's very precious. That's very precious, yeah. Yeah, so there is, there, yeah, so there might be some memory over there, but it's typically... I don't know. Yaakov is asking, is it a choice 
What about the notion of a choice? The soul chooses, again, from the, from the, from the Talmudic source that, I, that I'm familiar with, I don't know that it's as much of a choice as it is kind of some sort of preordination of certain elements. Again, that doesn't take away, as I'm trying to say, it doesn't take away free choice when we're here. But it's kind of like, okay, here's the general, you know, the general plan, and then we're born and we don't, we're not aware of this. There's a lot of things that happen against our will. So we don't, so I'm going to go through them again. It says, against your will, you were fashioned. That's a reference to conception. Against your will, you were born. That's a reference to birth. So vis-a-vis the soul. So the soul, the soul becomes associated with the, the child or the person at conception. Or, as I mentioned a few moments ago, even 40 days before conception, there's already a conversation about it. Now, how do you, well, how, one second, how do we know 40 days before conception? They know things up there. They know things. They, right? There's, there's more information than we have here. Here things play out linear, like in a linear fashion with chronological linear time. And up there, things are a little bit more, I don't know, a little bit different. Not, not so time um, not so stuck in, in, in the way we structure time. So that's one point. So the soul is associated with the body by conception, certainly. Now, that doesn't mean that the soul is fully in the body until birth. You know, the question of, and the reason why I'm trying to walk around this topic is the question that many people ask based on this conversation, according to Judaism, when does life begin? It's a complicated topic because there is an association of the soul with the body, with the body of the child already at conception, but it's not integrated until birth. So is there life before, is life, does life begin at conception? Depends how you define life. If you define life by a loosely associated soul associated with that body, okay. If you define it as an integrated unit, then it's not that until birth. So how does it impact questions that we might have, uh, you know, medical, medical ethics questions? Again, that's something that's a discussion, but there is a, the, the idea here is that it, it's a, um, it's, does, things don't happen at one time. It's a, it's a process. And in fact, it says that a child, the soul doesn't really fully integrate until they're named, either at the bris or at the baby naming, whatever it is. And it's still not fully integrated until the bar bat mitzvah. And it's still not fully, you see where I'm going with this? It's like, there are stages. And you and I can relate to this, right? When did we mature? <laughs> Met- <laughs> well, that wasn't a trick question. That wasn't, that's like, when do we mature? Or did you, we mature? Or did we mature? But that's what I mean. It wasn't a trick question. But when, when do we mature? The answer, the real answer is different stages. There's one level of maturity, another level of maturity, another level of maturity, right? There's different stages of maturity. Depends, you know, we, we matured. But then there's always more room to, to mature. So the relationship, the integration of soul and body is an ongoing process. I mean, who can say, yes, my soul is perfectly integrated with my body, not to the extent, not only to the extent that I can function and breathe and walk and whatever, but also to the fact that my body perfectly channels all of the desires of my godly soul. All right, that's, that's a tall order. That's like tzaddik level, right? That's like perfectly seamless to my soul's um, uh, desire. Okay, that's, that's already a higher level. But my point is that there are stages of integration. But getting back to, to the Mishnah. So it says, against our will, we're conceived. 
So that initial association, soul and body, didn't happen with our choice, our body's choice. Our body didn't choose that. Against our will, we were born. Right? The soul is then further integrated with the body and sent out into the world. Again, that wasn't our choice. Against your will, you live. That refers to after birth for the, the duration of life. Then it says against your will, you die, which means that on some level, we do embrace life and then we don't want to give it up. So there's a parable that's brought that's based on Jewish law. Okay, you ready for this? So I'm going to paint you a picture. I'm not literally, but I'm going to give you a description. And then we're going to discuss the law and the spiritual message from this. Imagine a fellow owns a field. Let's call him Ruvain. Right? Ruvain owns a field. Nice square field. And Shimon, another guy, decides to buy the adjacent fields on three sides of Ruvain's fields. Are you with me on this? Okay, so let's just make it simple. So picture a box, picture a square, okay? And that's owned by Ruvain. And then picture on the east, west, and south of the property. And I don't know if which is my east and which is your west, but right, left, and bottom, somebody else buys the land, okay? Shimon buys those properties. And Shimon puts up a, a fence between, right, good neighbors. What is it? Good fences make good neighbors? Yeah, something like that. So he puts up a fence. He builds a fence between his property and Ruvain's interior property because he's kind of surrounding him. But, you know, you need a good fence. So he puts up a fence on the right side, on the left side, on the bottom. And then he says to, to Ruvain, Shimon, Shimon paid for the fence. He went to Home Depot, he got the wood, he built it, did everything himself. He goes to Ruvain and says, Ruvain, I put up the fence between our properties. If you don't mind, I'd like half of the, like half of the thing. Ruvain says, what? so first of all, like we, didn't, you didn't talk, we didn't talk about this. We didn't have a conversation. Number one. Number two, I, so, so Shimon says, fine, okay, but fences should be put up. And I put it up myself. And you're benefiting from the fact that there is a fence, right? I mean, at the end of the day, he's benefiting. Ruvain, the interior guy, is benefiting from the fence. So you should pay. So he says, I hear you. It's good to have a fence around my property. But the northern side doesn't have a fence. So you didn't really help because my animals can still escape to that northern side. Are you with me in this scenario? Does this make sense so far? Yes? Thumbs up? Yes? Okay. Good. So the halacha is, this is brought down in Jerusalem. Halacha is, Ruvain does not have to pay for Shimon's fence that he put up. Why? Because he could say, you didn't fully benefit me. I mean, if you, but what happens, hold on, what happens if Ruvain, the interior landowner, subsequently puts up his own fence on the northern side and closes himself in? He reveals that he liked the fence. He, until then, he could say, I don't need your fence. I don't want your fence. I have an open side. Who needs a fence? It's your expense. It's your, I'm not paying you back. I didn't ask for it. I don't want it. But the moment he goes ahead and puts up his own fence to close it off on the northern side, right on the top, that reveals the whole time that what? He liked the fence. And he benef he's benefiting from the other three sides. And guess what the law would be? He has to pony up the cash for the, for the rest of the fence. 
You with me on this? You don't like this. <laughs> Dina Malka's not happy. It's like, how can you force someone into paying an expense they didn't? All right. This is the Jewish equivalent of, remember when you used to drive into New York back in the day? The squeegee, the, the, the windshield, right? I cleaned your windshield. Well, you're not going to pay. Like, what is this? What kind of business is this? I did, I did good work for you. <laughs> I know. It was always dirtier than before. <laughs> it never. It was never better. It was not, But theoretically, right? What do you mean? I did all this work for you. But you're not going to pay up? Okay. So that's, that's kind of... I, so I, I get the sentiment. But in Jewish law, the halacha is... Oh, this, this relates to another example. Imagine... Imagine a um, gutters, right? Gutters. A gutter repair person is driving with the gutter repair truck down the street and notices, because if, if, you know, if you're roofing and guttering, no one said that guttering, that's a new word that I've just coined right now, but if you know roofs and gutters, so you, you notice these things, right? So he notices this guy is driving down the street one day and notices in the neighborhood this house, this, this gutter, that's, that's in a dangerous, con- dangerous condition, and there's going to be damage to the house. So the guy knocks on the front door, and he wants to alert the homeowner to, to a danger. No one answers. Comes back the next day. No, no answer. A neighbor sees what's going on and says, can I help you? Uh, so this family, they went on vacation somewhere. They're not going to be, they always go on vacation in the fall and winter, whatever it is, they go on vacation. They don't come back until the spring. And no one knows where they go. No one can get a hold of them. The guy feels bad. There's going to be damage to the house. Right? They're in a state where there's going to be damage. Imagine he does the repairs. And then tucks a bill into the mailbox. Yeah? And the homeowners come back three, four, four or five months later. And the gutters are fixed. And everything's fine. The house is fine. And they have a bill. So here's the question. Do they have to pay? They didn't, they didn't contract. They didn't ask for the work. They didn't ask for the work. They didn't call up and say, hey, can you fix my gutters? The work was done. Do they have to pay now retroactively because there was benefit done to them? Legally, probably not. According to right. So legally, there's no way. Like in, in U.S. law, no way. Yeah, you want to do a good deed, you did a good deed. But I'm not, why, I have to pay for your good deeds. <laughs> Got to pay for your mitzvahs. But in, in Jewish law, again, I'm not giving a, a psak, I'm not giving a ruling, but in Jewish law, there would be a very strong consideration to pay. Why? Because at the end of the day, there was benefit. The person did the work. The recipient of the work benefited from that work. Unless they say, absolutely not, I definitely wanted my gutters to be in disrepair and my house to be ruined and undo the work that you've done, unless they say that, if they're happy with the work, then they have to pay in Jewish law. There's a story from the Talmud. Some guy planted trees in someone else's property. And then he sent him a bill. So the guy whose property was says, goes to Rabbah, says, this guy planted trees on my property and sends me the bill. And Rabbi says to him, you got to pay it. He says, I don't want the trees. He says, I forget the dialogue. I went back and forth a few times. He said, you should still pay it. He says, I want the guy to take the trees out. Something, something to that extent. 
I don't know if he said that, that much, but he was like pushing back. He really didn't want the trees. And so the rabbi said, fine. Oh, I think initially the rabbi said, okay, pay half. So, so just pay for the labor or for the expenses, whichever is cheaper. Or no, I'm, so, I'm sorry, which pay either for the raw materials, the actual whatever was planted, or the, um, the improvement that your property has, like the value that your property has increased because of the trees, whichever is less. He says, no, I re refuse to pay. Turned out sometime later that this person had put up like protection around the trees. Some sort of like, um, I don't know, I don't know what it was. He, fencing around the trees, which means that he, he liked the trees. So the rabbi found out about that. He said, you got to pay full price for the trees now. You got to pay, you got to pay the price. Not pay the price, that sounds too ominous, but you have to pay you have to pay whatever it would cost, right? So let's say the raw materials for the trees cost $500, but a uh, landscaper would charge you 1000 for the job, got to pay 1000 now because you liked it. So this goes back to my squeegee example and my gutter example and also back to my field example. So what's the example with the field? Remember the guy with Ruvain with the interior field? And the other guy, Shimon, put up fencing, put up a fence around the three sides. And the, other, the interior guy said, Reuven said, I don't want to pay for it. I didn't ask you for it. It's still open on one side. But then when he finishes it off, we say, you did like it the whole time. You liked it, now you're on the hook. The Mishnah says, against your will, you were fashioned, you were conceived against your will. You were born against your will, you live against your will. So a person could say, why should I be punished? Why should there be any consequences to my actions? I didn't ask for any of this. But against your will, you die that's the fourth wall that you put up. The other three walls you didn't put up. You didn't choose to be conceived. You didn't choose to be born. You didn't choose to live. In other words, like to get that, that, that party started. But against your will, you die. That means that once you're here, you like it. You don't want to go. You put up the fourth wall. You with me on this? You got this, Chap? This is from the Vilna Gona. Beautiful interpretation. Now that, we, now that you want it, you don't want to go. So you did want this. You do like this. Okay, so now you need to know that actions have consequences and you have responsibilities and there is what we call Jewish karma. Let's talk about Jewish karma. Know that everything is according to the reckoning. Everything is in, accord is in accordance with the reckoning means that everything that we do has an objective effect. Yeah, I wrote in the email on Friday the idea of conservation of the law of conservation of matter, the law of conservation of energy, essentially what we know in science that energy never disappears, even matter never disappears. One second, let me check the chat. I see something popping up. What is the Hebrew word for former? Oh, I don't remember. Okay, I need to remind myself. Former. Oh, Yotzer. I'm going write to write it here. Yotzer. See, I'm thinking former as like X or past. I'm like, Yotzer. I'm just typing it in. Um, how about neighbor does not build the travelers and travelers give gift for surprise service? Good. Donna's like, that's real karma. Real karma is you don't build. The, the, the gutter and the, the, and the family comes back and they're so happy they give a gift to the, to the, land, to the, to the gutter repair. Yeah. But if there's a bill, there's a bill. But let's get back to this idea of, of, um, of 
of the law of conservation of matter and conservation of energy, and basically the idea that nothing that is done just disappears. You know the, the butterfly effect, the idea that a butterfly flapping its wings in one part of the world can cause a tsunami theoretically in another part of the world? The idea is that really no energy is lost. Everything that we do has an objective effect. And the, yeah? I have a question. Where do our thoughts come from? And once they're thought, where do our thoughts go? Our thoughts? Mm -hmm. Now you're asking the heavy questions. Where do thoughts come from? Where do they go? Yeah. Good, 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 good. Now you're getting into the law of attraction, which says that thoughts can already create reality. That's another conversation. Let's hold. hold. I, like how, I like how you're thinking. Joking. Or not joking, but thinking thoughts. So, so hold that thought. And, but let's talk about action for a moment because that's more, more aligned with the Mishnah and with, 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 with where we're going in, in our Kabbalistic text. The idea here is that everything that we do has an effect. And every, every action, not, in, not only in a negative way, right? It's, it's, not, it's not about like a negative thing. It's about a reality thing. Everything that we do has an effect. Everything that we do has an impact. And how long is that impact? Forever. Why should it only have a limited impact? It has an impact for all time. As we had in the commentary from Bartanura, Bartanura, by the way, they make wine now, but it's not the same guy. It's, uh, Bartanura was a commentary. Anyway, the Bartanura says that every little thing that we do is uh, collected into a larger unit, into a larger count. And again, this is not meant to be only solely understood to be an ominous teaching. It's also about the good that we do. Certainly the good that we do stands forever, stands in eternity. And every small action has a big impact. I think I said last week, one of the classes at least, that if anything is true in a negative sense, it's much more true in a positive sense. The Rebbe spoke about this with, atomic, with the atomic bomb. He said, look how one small thing can unleash such a huge force of destruction. Can we imagine also the opposite? How one small action could unleash a positive, positive change to an incredible extent. In other words, if in the forces of negativity, one small thing can unleash something major, so too, in the, certainly in the positive. But the idea here is that everything that we do has an impact. Right? What is karma? Karma is, I think Yaakov uh, gave a good translation, or somebody, somebody gave a good definition before, that our actions have an effect on this lifetime and other lifetimes, or the actions of other lifetimes affect us, without the discussion of you know, multiple lives and reincarnations, leaving that aside, the idea is that our actions create consequences, that the good that we do creates goodness around us. The opposite creates the opposite. If you want to use maybe more Jewish mystical terms, we could use the word angels, because that's sometimes used. Every mitzvah creates positive angels, and every negative action creates negative angels. But now we can ask the question, so what's an angel? And I guess the answer is that which is created by our actions. <laughs> some angels are created by God. Some angels are created by our actions. 
But again, I'm just giving you terminology here that may be helpful. So we create the aura around us based on our actions. And the truth is, the truth is, it's also based on the words that we say and the thoughts that we think. It is also based on the thoughts that we think, but that's a little bit more of a subtle conversation. But certainly our actions have a tremendous impact. Now, framing this or understanding this in a Kabbalistic sense, to go back, and this goes back to what we started introducing last week, we spoke about the Wheel of Fortune. Remember that, the Wheel of Fortune? The idea that the energy that comes from on high can come down in, in, in different ways. You can have more of a chesed energy, more of a kind energy, more of a gvur energy, more of a severe energy, depending on which way the wheel turns. If it turns to the right, it's going to channel the right side, which is more of the loving, kind, gentle, forgiving, understanding, whatever side. If it channels the left side, it's a little bit more of the harsher side. So it's, it comes down to the question of which way will that wheel spin. I took my kids a few days ago to a place in Atlanta called Stars and Strikes. Stars and Strikes. So what is... Is it near the, the uh, Center for Puppetry Arts? Uh, no. Um, there might be one there, but there's one. The one that I went to is in, I think, in Stone Mountain, near Stone Mountain. Somewhere over there. So what Stars and Strikes? It's a bowling alley that also has this elaborate arcade situation for kids. I call it Vegas for kids because it's like neon and flashing lights and you, the goal is that you spend money. Sounds horrible. Sounds horrible. It sounds, it's, it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. The kids love it until they hate it. It usually ends in tears. They, they loved it so much, it's like... No, I'm kidding. No, the, the kids enjoyed it, and they were, all, they were actually all happy. But there's one thing that I want to mention. They have many games over there. You know, these arcade games now, you don't put, you don't put coins in anymore. I mean, that's like old school. You, 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 you put down your credit card. You put down plastic to get another plastic card. You get their plastic card, and then the kids swipe their card, and then you have no idea how many, like, I mean, it tells you how many points it uses per game, but who's paying attention? You just swipe. Five minutes later, it's like, I've blown through 160 points. Can we get more? I'm kidding. That didn't actually happen. Again, everyone, everything went well. I'm just kind of joking. But there was one game there that I want to reference. It, it was created to mirror the Plinko game on, what was that game show? The Price is Right. Remember Plinko? Remember Plinko? One of my favorite games ever. Okay. If you put down a disc, right, and there's these, like, pegs. It's like a vertical, it's like a wall. And you put down like a disc or a ball and it bounces around, just depending on how it hits, it bounces around and then it, it goes into w one of any number of slots at the bottom that are different values. So you can get like the zero, they usually put like the big one in the middle, like the 500 points in the middle, but flanking on each side is a big old zero. And then there's like 200, 5, 10, whatever it is, like different, and you just drop it down. And they have with the, the, kids, the kids' version over here at the Stars and Strikes thing, has the ball is moving. It's like being carried by some sort of pulley system, very elaborate pulley system. 
and you swipe your card, and then you, you hit the button, you hit the, the trigger, and it drops the ball at some point, and then it just bounces around. And of course, there's levers that randomly go, and you have to ca calculate that into effect, and then hopefully you get into the slot that you want. Are you with me on this? He uses physics and all that stuff. I'm thinking of this because it's kind of like, okay, when the energy comes from above, right, how does it, how does it bounce through the worlds and hit down here? Right? How does it manifest? Does it manifest as divine love? Does it manifest as divine severity, gvura? Does it manifest as divine compassion? We have 10 sefirot, 10 energies, and depending on how the, 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 the divine life force, the divine beneficence, the divine blessing flows, right? And that's, depending on how it flows, that determines how it hits us. And what determines how it flows, that's where we come in. So I want to add another game to it, pinball. They didn't have pinball there, but I'll add pinball. You know, pinball, you control the little ch -ch -ch, But like basic pinball is that you control the levers right at the bottom. But more advanced is you control the other levers that are in the middle of the board. Are you with me on this? Yes? Yes? Like, like advanced pinball is? There's not only one set of levers that you're controlling, there's like other sets of levers that you're controlling. And the same thing is true when it comes to the spiritual reality of our universe. And specifically, the energy that flows down to our reality. There is a system Right, it bounces through Plinko style, whatever you call it, it bounces through the worlds, the sphere of the energies, until it reaches us. Um, but part of that, part of what determines, or a major part of what determines what it looks like at the end is based on our control of those levers. We can make it go right, we can make it go left, we can make it go down the center. We go a long way in controlling or dictating exactly what that looks like. And based on our actions, right, know that everything is in according to the reckoning. What that means is that every action that we do and, yes, everything that we say and every thought that we think has an effect on the nature of that divine energy coming down to us. So we're not going to stop the energy from coming down. The nature of divine, the, the basic law of Kabbalistic gravity is what is above will fall down below. But the question is, what, what is it going to look like when it reaches here? In the source, it's pure, it's perfect, it's beautiful, it's divine, it's godly. But when it comes down here, what is it going to look like? That's where we come in. We determine through our actions and our words and our thoughts how that, what that looks like. So what I want to do now is... is um, Rabbi? Yes, Rabbi? Donna, yes. Is there a indication of what the proportion or percentages are vis-a-vis -vis all of Jews' actions and our individual actions? Oh, that's a great question. Oh, you have. Perfect. So, um, yeah, we're, um, we're referring to right now on an individual level. So your question is, okay, but what about on a universal level? How does my action affect the collective, like the butterfly that affects the tsunami somewhere else? So yes, there is an effect that we also have on the universe at large, 100%. And there's this interconnectedness that we have. Um, but first and foremost, our actions right, affect the way the energy flows to us as an individual. It also affects the collective flow. How does one individual affect the collective flow? That's a good question. I don't necessarily have that algorithm. Right? God has that algorithm. And sometimes it might seem like the algorithm is broken. We're all doing good things. What's wrong? Right? What's wrong with the algorithm? Again, that's... I think the... you could say that 
we're all here today in diaspora because of what what Jews did in our past. Right. Although the Rebbe said that if we corrected the problem that got us into this mess, we would have Mashiach. In other words, you know, the second temple was destroyed because we didn't get along. If we were actually, you know, in that place of getting along, you know, there's sinaschinam, which could be translated as baseless hatred or free hatred. So what's the, what's the antidote to that? Baseless love. I love you even though I have no reason to love you, right? Or free love, not necessarily the 60s style, but like, you know, the idea that we should love without without reservation, love the other, even if there's every reason to not like them. I, I love you anyway, nonetheless, because I know your soul, I, 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 I connect with something deeper within you, etc. So what's the point here? The point is that, as it says in the Talmud, or the Medrash, one of the sources, it says, whoever does not, if, if in our lifetime, the temple was not rebuilt, it's like it was destroyed in our lifetime. So, I, you know, it, it, it is about the actions of, of, of some thousands of years ago, but it's also about our actions today. So there is some level of, of um, responsibility that we all have for that. So this idea of, of, spiritual, of Jewish spiritual karma is that the way the energy flows from above is necessarily tied into the actions that we take in our lives. What I want to do is pull up. Oh, why did I close it? That's so strange. Okay, I'm going to pull up on my screen the Sephiro chart, which is something I've pulled up for years now. And if you've, if you've taken Kabbalah and coffee before, whether in person or online, you've probably seen this once or twice. I'm going to pull this up if I can find it. Here it is on my screen. Rabbi, does it have anything to do with sins? Um, you know, I don't know how to say it, like our, to the seventh generation. You know, that's a complicated thing. Adina Mark is asking, is there something of like sinning for the, well, it says only three or four generations. Um, you know, does that affect, how does that affect actually multiple generations? It's a good question. I, I you know, I, I would, one way to understand that is that it's not necessarily that children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren are punished or whatever, are facing the consequences of their predecessors' actions, but more of like the way the behavior was done in that earlier generation necessarily affects often, not necessarily, but, but often affects the behavior of the subsequent generations, if that makes sense. Through patterns. And, and uh, 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 on a pragmatic level, in other words, Physically, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, on all four dimensions. And I didn't go in the right order, did I? Physically, emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually. Yeah, I went up the ladder. So on all four levels, it could have an impact. Not like some divine punishment thing, but just like, an, like a natural thing. Karma. Straight up. But it's, it's not even like, a, like, a, like a, a mystical thing. It's like very practical. It's like... A parent chooses this, and the child is brought up in this type of situation or educated this way or that way, it's going to have an effect, for better or for worse. And who's, which parent could ever say, you know, I didn't do anything to, you know, to negatively affect my child. We all do our best, and it happens, right? That's why there's therapy. 
Anyway, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm not kidding, but that's, that's the way it is, right? Because the, the parents and children, it's, it's, been, it's been interesting from the beginning. So, so when we talk about that the indiscretions you know, last for a few generations, is it that God is punishing, so to speak, or is it just, that's, that's typically how long it takes to undo the trauma. It takes a few generations to undo some of that stuff. Anyway, I'm not necessarily giving an answer, but I'm giving a perspective that may, may be helpful. So on the screen I have, as you see, these, my Sphero chart um, in Word, just a Word document. And in front of you, in person, you have the printout of the version of the Sphero chart, blue and red. Blue corresponds to the intellectual powers of the soul. The red corresponds to the emotional powers of the soul. So there's wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. Which we've given different definitions before, but it's not really. I don't want to get stuck in, in, the, in the particulars right now, but more of a, an overall view. And then those are the three intellectual powers. The seven emotional are chesed, loving kindness, kvura severity, tfer compassion, netzach ambition, ho devotion, yusod bonding, and malchut leadership. So if you look at this, I'm going to make this chart on my computer a little bit smaller so you can see the whole chart at once. So what we explained last week is this Wheel of Fortune. And who controls or what controls the Wheel of Fortune? It's Malchut, which is at the bottom. Malchut is what turns the wheel. And Malchut, when it turns to the right, that means, again, the Plinko thing is trending toward the right, giving my own analogy, and that channels the divine blessing or the divine energy to flow down the right side of this chart. Chachma, Chesed, Netzach. You see the three on the right side? Chachma, Chesed, Netzach. The acronym of which is Chachan. Chachma, Chesed, Netzach, Chachan is channeled when we are doing good things. When we're doing positive things, living true to purpose, on point, true to mission, etc., the wheel turns to the right and we're pulling down from the right side which essentially the core, the middle energy of the right side is that chesed, loving kindness. And what that looks like when that energy is manifest in our reality, that looks like blessings that are obvious and open and that feel good, right? That, that's when the flow comes down from above in a way that feels good and it feels happy, it feels loving, it feels kind, it feels gentle. That's how it feels. When the wheel of Malchut turns to the left, so then the channel, the channeling is, on the, is from the left side, which is Bina, Gevura, and Hod. Bina, Gevura, and Hod. Baga. Bet, Gimel, Hey. Baga. Chachan on the right side, Baga on the left side. Again, the center of that left side is the Gevura severity, which is when the, when the, when the, the divine energy comes down, the modality of that left side energy is either we don't sense that it came down, it feels like it's been withheld, or even when, or if we do sense it, it might sense, it might feel harsh, it might feel painful, it might feel difficult. In other words, using our language, it might feel like a challenge, a challenge that came to us from above. Ay, I don't, I don't, like why, why is this challenge in my life? It came, it's, come, it, it, it's, it's an energy that's coming down to us that is manifesting as a challenge, as opposed to 
that which manifests as an open, clear, digestible, understandable blessing, that is from the right side. So there's the right side, there's the left side. And the question is, and, and, and what determines that? Malchut. Malchut is the wheel that turns the energy either channeling from the right side or the left side. You know, a simple example of this is water, right? You have a sink or you have a shower. Usually showers have this type of, some showers have this configuration. There's one, what do you call it? One lever, dial, something, lever. There's one lever and you, you, turn, you turn it and it, the water starts coming, but it might be cold. So then you have to keep on turning it and then it gets hot. And it may be too hot. So you have to adjust it, right? You adjust it. Adjust the temperature. That's, that's malchut. Malchut on the bottom is the lever that adjusts the temperature. Is it coming from the right side, in which it's obviously good, or the left side, where it's a little bit more harder to see the good? It feels a little bit more difficult, more challenging. Who is turning? Who is turning the wheel? Malchut is, is the lever that turns the wheel. But who's in charge of how the wheel turns? Chachma at the top. I know Chachma is on the right side, but it says that Chachma on the top is the divine wisdom. By the way, this is, I should probably have clarified, this chart exists within our souls and exists within the, the cosmic realms. We're talking now on the cosmic realms, not in the interpersonal, not in the, not in the personal terms. So divine Chachma is the wisdom that determines which way the wheel of Malchut will turn and channel either the right side or the left side. And what triggers, we keep on passing the buck here, Malchut turns the wheel, but who tells Malchut what to do? Chachma. But who tells Chachma what to do? That's us. That's us. Our actions. That's the point of today's class. Our actions determine, right? Our actions dictate to Chachma what's what, which dictates to Malchut how to turn the wheel, which dictates how the flow of energy is going to manifest to us. Now, we believe, we believe with every fiber of our being that everything that comes down from above is ultimately for our benefit. There's a famous statement of our sages, Ein ra yored momayla. There is not, no such thing as evil that descends from above, which, by the way, is probably one of the most theological or philosophically challenging statements in Judaism. There's no evil that descends from above. Because then how do you explain? I mean, just, you know, just put, fill in the most evil thing and horrible thing you can imagine. How do you explain that as not being evil descending from above? And I don't, I'm not going to sit here today and tell you, well, I have, here's the answer and how, here's how it makes sense. But this is something that our sages teach. It's something that requires a lot of work and study and meditation, and, and maybe we'll never get there to an understanding, but it's something that's, that's at least taught. And so even as the flow comes from the left side, even as the wheel turns to the left side, and it, it's a more, of a more of a harsh or severe flow of energy, we still believe that it's coming ultimately from Hashem, and therefore ultimately the challenges are also from the good. You ever heard me say that before? Even the challenges are an opportunity. We've said that once or twice before in these classes. So we believe that even the left side is for our benefit. But... If you had a choice, yeah, the obvious good stuff or the stuff that you have to really work hard to figure out why this too is a blessing, which would you rather? Would you rather the obvious blessing or the blessing that needs um, a bit of an interpretation? What do you think? What do you guys say? The obvious blessing. Are you with me on that? Yes? Easy. Yeah, we all want, we all want the easy blessing. We all want the, 
Right? You want something sweet or you want something that's spicy? And you know what? Spicy is not bad. <laughs> but, but when it comes to blessings, we want the sweet, we want the easy to, easy to digest, easy to understand blessing. And what Kabbalah teaches us is that that flow is dictated by our actions. Everything is according to the reckoning. What does that mean, according to the reckoning? Everything that comes from us is what's taken into account when determining the flow that comes down to us. You mean free choice? Free choice. It's our choices that ultimately dictate what we get. It's kind of like the parable that's taught of a builder. He was a home, he built homes. And there was a guy that commissioned him to build homes for years. And he, the builder was, was going to retire. And the fellow, the investor, said to him, you know what, build one more house for me. One more house before you hang, before you hang up your tool belt. One more house. Well, this guy, he was done. He wasn't really into it. And so he built, he, he did it. He built a house, this last house, but he built it shoddily, if that's a word. He didn't build it shoddily. He built it shoddily. But the guy, the investor didn't know. The builder built it. He doesn't get involved. He's not there on the site. He, he gives the money for it. Anyway, the guy, the builder comes back. The investor says, it's done. And the investor says to him with a big smile, oh, I'm so happy to hear as, thank, as a thanks for all these years of, of building, this is your house. Enjoy it. <laughs> oh, no. Look what I did. I built it shoddily, and that's my house. We, again, it's not, it's not meant to be an ominous thing. It's meant to be a, a real thing. It's like, what is a, what's the expression? You, you sleep in the bed that you made or something, something like that? It's, it's, it is what it is. It's like the, the karma, right? It's like Jewish karma. Is it some sort of like retribution or whatever? No, it's like a natural consequence, right? The, there's good energy that we put forth. So the energy that flows, like kind, positive energy that we put out. So the energy from above flows in that same line. Negative energy goes out from us. It flows down the negative side. So it's pretty, it's pretty straightforward. That there is a cheshman. There everything is, there everything is, is calculated. And it's calculated not based on some random, you know, throw of the dice. It's all based on, on us. Ultimately, we are the ones that determine what comes down to us. It, it, using another analogy that I, I literally used a few days ago in a class, maybe even the Wednesday night Torah class. When it comes to, to, to rain, right, the rain that comes down is really the water that has evaporated from below, right? So how do clouds form? Through evaporation. Evaporation creates condensation, which then creates precipitation. So what comes down is what went up, which is why it's probably not good to pollute our waters, because then what comes down is polluted rain. And who wants polluted rain? It's not good for, it's not good for the Jews or for anybody, right? It's just an expression. It's just an expression, right? It's, it's not good for the Jews. It's not good for anybody, right? It's not good for the world. So let's not pollute our waters because who wants polluted rain? You want acid rain now? Who needs to deal with that? But, but, but you get, you reap what you sow, right? But not, you don't have to focus on the negative. It could be the positive. You create positive energy 
And what happens? You get positive results. You get positive flow that comes down. So that's kind of the energy of what's going on here. But again, if you want to break it down in the mystical level, you have, and I showed you the chart. I could pull it up again, but you guys, you guys saw it for a while. You have Malchut at the bottom. It's the wheel. That's the wheel. How the wheel turns is how the energy flows, the plinko board, whatever you want to call it. Right or left, positive or... You can't see it as positive yet. And who determines Malchut? Chachma. And who determines Chachma? Our actions. So ultimately, where it, we have the steering wheel. That's what it comes to. That's, that's, what, that's the bottom line here. We're holding the steering wheel. And the way we turn, right? There's we work and this is we turn. The way we turn the wheel is the, is the way that the wheel turns above. When we turn to the right, I need to get my son, Nassim, some driving lessons. And I don't know. I haven't seen a driver lesson car. Do they have two steering wheels on that thing? Or no? no. They have two brakes. They have two brakes. I guess that's most <laughs> critical. <laughs> I'm like, how are we going to? I'm like, how are we going to? Oh, they can't have two steering wheels, right? No. That's going to break the car. I don't know. I thought maybe. I don't know. I don't know. That's my ignorance. Sorry. Um, I, re- I Googled the two steering wheel cars and pictures came up, but who knows? Photoshop. You, you never, well, you never know. Um, but anyway, like, it, there are two steering wheels. There's the steering wheel above and the steering wheel below. So how the steering wheel above turns, that's how our fate turns. But who turns that steering wheel? Chach, uh, malchut. But who determines that? Chachma. Who determines Chachma? Oh, that was us. So it turns out that there's a steering wheel below our steering wheel, the way we turn our lives. I don't know who drives like that, but that's how I'm turning my steering wheel. It's like, oh my gosh, that's a crazy, get out of that car. That's, that's Meshuga. Anyway, um, but how we turn the wheel determines how the wheel is turned above, which then determines what comes to us. So it's a very simple solution. We want good things, turn the wheel in the right direction. Make the right turn, literally and figuratively. You know, in Judaism, I need to, I need to mention this. It says, whenever you come to a path, to a crossroad, and don't know which way to go, you know where you should go? Like right or left? Which one? What do you think? Go right. That's what it says. Based on Kabbalah. That's what it says. Based on Kabbalah, you should always go right. I have a question. Yes. Okay, this had something to do with something you said several pages ago in my notes about that each person is judged according to their nature and we have different standards. Yes. And... I read, and I just want you to add on to this, um, but I read in one of my Musar books that everyone has a curriculum. And yes. that sort of stuff comes up again and again and again. Yes. Is what you have to work on. So let. Perseverate on. Yes. And so, and what, whatever you work on, if you're able to overcome, that's what you're judged on. For example, uh, anger isn't something that I have to deal with. So I get no points for anger. Right. But maybe Matthew has to work on anger. And right. And he overcomes that. Um, right. Yes. Okay. So, so let me let me elaborate. So, we have this idea that we mentioned earlier from I believe it was Rambam Maimonides on the Pirkei Avot, who says that what does it mean that everything is according to the reckoning? That means that there's an individual individual judgment for everybody. Not everybody is judged the same way. Two people do the same thing, but for one person it's not good. For the other person, it's not so bad. Why? Because everyone has their own thing. So. Susan mentioned 
that it, it, it seems to align with another teaching in Judaism, which is that everybody, and using this phrase, every person has their own curriculum, has their own things that they need to do, they need to learn, and some things that are not necessary for them to learn because that's not a challenge for them. So, for example, somebody might need to deal with anger, whereas another person, maybe that's not a challenge. So the, for the person that needs to deal with it, it's very, you know, it's very, there's, it's very, you say nagea, it's very um, relevant how that, how that goes. But for the person that doesn't deal with it, so it's, it's not a challenge. It's not something that they're dealing with, struggling with, or overcoming. So there's no real points, so to speak, in that, in that system. So I agree with that. In other words, there's, that, that is, that's a powerful idea. And that, I think it does perfectly align with, with what the Rambam says, that everything is according to the reckoning. In other words, like what, what is challenging for someone else might not be challenging for us, so we can't judge them based on ourselves. Be like, if I don't get angry, they shouldn't get angry. Everyone's got their own thing. For them to get a little angry maybe is like for us not to get angry. And so maybe their, their line is somewhere else than our line. It's not a way to let necessarily let people off the hook, but it's really a way to stop judging others, right? It's just like, don't judge someone else. Only God knows where everyone's holding and what everyone needs to learn and what every, what, where the line is for everybody. So, yes, of course, there are human judges that God, God wants law and order. And, you know, God says that we should create societies that have objective laws and absolute laws, you know, when it comes to certain, certain things. But unless, you know, unless we're wearing a, a, a black robe and a gown, and holding a gavel, it's not necessarily within our um, mission statement to be the judge of someone else. So, a very, very powerful idea. Very powerful idea, very important. Sure. Um, are there people that are so, so unconscious that they only have access to maybe one of these energies? And I'm speaking from experience, someone that was in my life that I felt only Gavora, mm. and they weren't very reflective. Right. And is it that in this model where the energy is flowing, it's only going to one place and you're not aware of the other energies? Okay, right. So, so, the question, so, so the question is, are there, is it possible that a person could live their life and only channel from one of the sphera, one of the energies? For example, Gvura, someone who's very harsh, very demanding, very uh, maybe pessimistic, very negative, very mean, right, cruel. So these would all be um, what I would say like the, the negative um, manifestation of Gvura. Gvura from a personal level does not have to be negative, but these would be more of the negative manifestations of Gvura. And I don't believe that that means that, they're, that they're, the energy that came down to them was only from Gvura. My understanding is that they, may, maybe their soul is more leaning toward Gvura, but how they channel that would be their free choice. Because Gvura could be um, strength, a strength. Like a fo think of a laser versus a, f a flashlight. Right? A laser is, what's the difference? Because it focuses the light. In, the boundaries. Right, it creates a focused light. Instead of just, just being a broad light, it's a focused light, which creates incredible intensity. Which intensity could go to a negative place, but it could also be very positive. So that would be, I would say, a person with strong gavura probably has a strong soul natiya, a soul a, a leaning toward gavura, but how it actually manifests in one's life would be a product of choice. 
So, you know, we can't necessarily like let ourselves off the hook and say, listen, I'm more of a poor person. I'm, I have to be mean. That doesn't have to translate into that, into, into a negative manifestation. But what that person, the energy that that person gets in their life, they have, everyone has all 10 energies. But, but there, is, there is more that we, we, we typically lean toward one, one side over the other, typically, typically. Some people are right down the middle, but most of the time it's one way or the other. Let's, go, let's jump inside because I do want to learn some inside text today. We have a few minutes left, but I want to cover some ground. Let me find, where is this? Oh, here we go. Okay. I'm going to share my screen with everybody online. And let me get the right page here. Let me get the right page in the, oh, hold on. Let's, let's make sure everyone has a copy in person. Dina can you take this and pass it down? And you guys have copies? All right, perfect. Um, okay, we are up to, let me, let me reorient myself inside over here. Hold on. Give me a second. Zechachma and Chesed. Where is that? Where is that written here? Okay, I'm scrolling through and making everybody dizzy online. Let me look in my book and we'll, this will be more effective this way. Okay, let's, we're going to pick this up on 136. Okay, here we go. Perfect, 136. Okay, bottom paragraph. Here we go, bottom paragraph 136. Okay, the wheel. The wheel, what's this wheel? The wheel is Malchot of Atzilut. That's what I was showing you in the chart before. The wheel is Malchot. The source of the ben beneficence flowing into Biyah. Biyah refers to the lower worlds, lower three worlds, of which we are the lowest world, the A in Biyah, known as Asiyah, the world of action. And the wheel of Malchut, right? Wheel is the, the energy of Malchut, which, which turns and decides, uh, decides, it, 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 it moves the flow, either it channels the flow from the right side or the left side. So it spins according to the deeds of men, men meaning humankind. When men, human, when human beings are good, when we're doing what we need to be doing, the wheel spins to the right, meaning that Malchut, ma, that Malchut receives from the right line of Atzilut, which consists of Chachma, Chesed, Netzach. That's, those are the three right side energies that I showed you. Then, kindness, 138, dominates. Good and kindness are listed into this world. If, God forbid, there is no awakening from below, and there are none who do good, so there's a negative energy, karma from us, then... By their deeds, men cause Malchut to receive from the left line. Everything depends on the actions of mortals. What we do matters. Let's continue with chapter 3. 
The operator, I read that last week, but I just wanted to pick it up because we did mention the Chachan, Chachma Chesed Netzach. I showed you on the chart what that looks like, the three energies on the right side, when the wheel turns, and who turns the wheel? Chachma. But who determines Chachma? That's our actions. Again, it's like the water that, evap that evaporates, um, condensates, and then precipitates. Chapter 3. The operator that moves and turns the wheel to be altered in accordance with the deeds of mankind. So who determines, not who determines, but who operates, who controls the wheel above? That is the measuring rod of Chachma, turning the wheel according to the awakening from below. So again, our actions trigger Chachma, which then dictates how the wheel should turn. The wheel turns, and that's what comes down below. Chachma possesses the measurement. Determining Chachma is the algorithm, essentially. Chachma is the algorithm. Determining precisely what is appropriate, specifying the fulfillment of Torah and mitzvot in, in, in avoiding the prohibited according to the 365 prohibitions and their offshoots, and in, and in positive fulfillment of the 248 commandments with their offshoots, as we have discussed above, Discourse 1, Chapter 2. This, therefore, controls the movement of the wheel. When Israel observed the mitzvot that Malchul receives from the right line and bestows good, meaning that the conduct of the world will be of the order of kindness. When God forbid... The generation is undeserving. The conduct will be of the order of Gevura. Okay. So this is how our actions are fed into this algorithm of Chachma, which then determines the wheel, how the wheel of Malcha will turn, which determines whether the flow is going to come from the right side or the left side. Let's continue 140. He talks about two reckonings, or two aspects of the reckoning. The reckoning, then, is twofold. Here we go. There's two aspects to the ch reckoning in Hebrew is the cheshben, to the calculation, to the algorithm. First is the evaluation of the deeds of mankind. Are their deeds acceptable according to the standards of Torah or not? Right? So the first thing is, okay, so what, what, what energy are we putting out? Second, the second reckoning is the determination of the method of coalescence of chesed and gvura, whether the right shall predominate with its uh, concomitant, wow, kindness, that's, a, that's quite the word, or, God forbid, dot, 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 dot. So basically, there's two, there's two determinations that are made. One calculation is, okay, so what's happening? What, the, what, what energy is coming up from, from human beings? That's the first calculation. The second calculation is, well, based on that, how should the wheel turn in precisely what formula? It's like self-driving cars, right? Self-driving cars work the same way. Tesla just came out with an update to like, really like, take their next, the next level self-driving. So self-driving cars is the information from the road and from the surroundings fed to a computer inside the car, which then determines which way the steering wheel should turn, right? Very simple, correct? Not so simple, but essentially very simple. Something is reading the road and what's going on, and that feeds the information into this computer that then calculates all the calculations and says, all right, we gotta turn right, or we gotta turn left, or we gotta turn right a little bit, or a lot. Are you with me on this? It's not just right or left, it's how right or how left. The same thing is true here with the Wheel of Malchut. It's how far right, how much of the obvious good is gonna flow, how much of the chesed, how much of the not-so-obvious good is going to flow, the gvura. 
Is it going to go far this way, far this way? Is it going to be right down the middle? Is it going to be 90 degrees, 45 degrees, 15 degrees, minus 15, whatever it is? How is it going to turn? All of that is dependent on our actions. So he says, in general, there's two points of calculation. Number one is, what, what's happening on the ground? And number two is, based on that, how should the wheel turn? So again, thinking of the, the, the self-driving car, the first calculation is, the first determination is, what's, what's on the road? What does the road look like? And the second calculation is based on that calculation, so how do we need to turn the wheel? Okay, that's an oversimplification, but nonetheless, something to understand this. Hence, and now we finally get into the Mishnah that we started the class with. We come full, full circle right here. Hence, this is third paragraph on 140. Hence, the Mishnah in Avot 422, that's what we read today, declares that everything is according to reckoning. Everything is according to, or the reckoning. Rashi comments, he quotes Rashi here. We quoted Bartanura and Rambam and Maimonides. He quotes Rashi. Rashi comments that one to another to make an account, penny added to penny, accumulate to a large sum. That's what Rashi says. Very poetically, Rashi explains that every little action builds up to a larger sum. The truth is, it sounds like the Bartanura that we had, the commentary before the Bartanura, but Rashi has his own way of saying it, which is essentially that even small actions lead to a bigger final result. There is conversely a negative reckoning, so that's a positive reckoning. So when you give tzedakah, every penny that you give is not taken, oh, you only give a penny, oh, it doesn't count, or it's only a penny. No, every single penny, literally every penny, is mitztarif, combines to the larger sum, and, and produces a, a, a large sum. So that's on, in a positive way. Forget it, for, it's not necessarily about money. It could be about anything. Every so-called little mitzvah that we do goes a long way. There's conversely a negative reckoning, as our sages say, on the verse and tells man of his speech, that even conversation between man and wife, sins that man tramples underfoot, everything comes into account. What does that mean, even conversation between man and wife? You think, behind closed doors, I could say something, or do could say something, and maybe it's not nice, or maybe whatever, something negative, and who's going to know it's not going to be? Everything creates an energy. Everything has an effect. Sins that man tramples underfoot. Yesterday was Akev, Parsha's Akev. It's all about not overlooking the things that otherwise we might trample underfoot. Things that might seem small are actually big. God is in the details. Every little thing matters. And it's not a doom and gloom. Oh, everything matters. Be careful. It's not about be careful. It's about, I mean, it also is about be careful, but it's, it's about the power of of. of it's about the power of the little, the, the little thing. The little thing is powerful. It's not so little. The little thing is not so little. Another explanation, that's one explanation of the Mishnah. Another explanation of the Mishnah is that if two people commit an identical sin, their punishment and defects are not identical. Oh, these are literally the two, the two explanations we had. This is bar, like Bartanura and this is like Rambam. Two people that do the same thing, they don't have the same, it's not this, it doesn't mean the same thing. According to the magnitude of the soul, and souls are not of the same rank, is the magnitude of the defect. So some, for some souls, this would be a problem. For other souls, maybe it's a mitzvah, right? For one person, it's a good deed. For the other person, Oy, I can't believe they did that. It just depends on the person. All this account taking and reckoning is within the order of Hishtalshlut, i.e. the calculation and judgment issuing from Chachma, the first stage of Hishtalshlut. Okay, so all of this, and this is where we're going to, I think... I don't want to, uh, do I want to push a, a very quick um, teaser? Yeah, let's do one more paragraph and we'll, we'll close it out. Give me 30 seconds. 
So all of this is the cheshben, the algorithm, the calculation that happens within this box of creation. But in terms, final paragraph 140, but in terms of the transcendent infinite light, there is no judging, for the deeds of mankind have no significance there. Beneficence may, flow well, may well flow in rich measure beyond all reckoning, even to those who transgress his will. For this reason, the way of the wicked succeeds, for he is patient, and they receive from the state of Erechapayim higher than the place, that means divine patience or infinite patience, higher than the plane of reckoning. The beneficence does not discriminate against the undeserving, and it is unstinting rather than measured according to worth, for it is of the order of boundlessness, as we shall soon explain next week. Next week we talk about how everything that we spoke about with the wheel and the algorithm and the self-driving cars and the cheshben and the accounting and all that stuff, how all of that was only inside the box called hishtal shalut, which I'll explain that term next week or we'll expand upon it. But when you get to a system beyond the system, all bets are off and the algorithm does not function as, as it does typically. There is no algorithm beyond the algorithm. Okay, what does that mean? You have to join next week to find out. So in summation, what's, uh, what's the takeaway that we have from today? Look, karma is a word that originates, my understanding is it's associated with, with Eastern philosophy and religion. So one might say, eh, it's not, it's not a Jewish concept. But, and I, I'm not an expert in what karma means in that, in that setting, but I will tell you that there is a Jewish understanding of karma or a very a Jewish understanding of the notion, I think, that's similar to karma. And that is that everything that we do has an effect for, for better or for worse. And the energy that we put out into the world is not only what affects others, but it's ultimately that boomerang, right, that affects us. And so what's the message of today? It's put out the good energy to create a world that we want to live in. It's, we're the builders. God has given us the tools. God said, build me a house. But you know who gets to live in the house? We get to live in the house, right? God says, make me a home on earth. Here are the tools. Build me a home. It's like the, the investor with the contractor, with the builder, right? But then when we're done with the building, God says, you happy with the building? Sure. All right. It's yours. Gives us the keys. So let's create the world that we're excited to live in. It's, in all, it's all in our control. That, that's, that's where free choice comes in. So let's create this world to be a good world, a better world, by doing good things in our lives and uh, making this world a beautiful place. All right, thanks for joining. Let's, uh, let's pause for any, or let's, let's stop here for today. Next week we'll talk about beyond the system. Any questions or comments? Yes. Yes. What else? Bartonura yeah. today is a, is a wine label. Yeah. They make a great Moscato um, and other wines. Bartonura was a, Rabbi Ovadja Bartonura, he was a great commentary. There might be a bio back here. I think there is a bio. Let's see. I don't, I don't remember his, um, yeah, but let me see if I can pull it up for the benefit of everybody. Bartonura. Bartonura. Maybe he's Rabbi Ovaja Bartanura. Let's see if he's over there. Why don't I see him? Okay, I don't see him back here. All right, well, he is... Oh, I know why, because he's not brought, it, brought over here. 
because he's I brought him in in this book, not not uh, not our not our book, not our Kabbalah book. He quoted Rashi here. If we were to look up Bartinura. Like several different kinds of wine. Yes. Bartinura was a 15th century it, Rabbi Ovadja ben Abraham of Bertin, Bertinoro. Commonly known as the Bartinura was a 15th century Italian rabbi best known for his popular commentary on the Mishnah. In his later years, he rejuvenated the Jewish community of Jerusalem and became recognized as the spiritual leader of the Jews of his generation. He was born in 1445 and passed away in 1515. So he was born in Italy, in Bertinoro, hence Bartinura, and he passed away in Jerusalem in, the, in 1515. In case you're wondering, were there Jews in, in Israel in 1515? Well, now you know. The answer is yes. Yes. And they had a spiritual leader known as the Bartinura. Um, okay, any other questions? Comments? An anecdote about teaching my daughter how to drive. Yes. Well, no, we'll, well, soon. Let's okay. do it soon. Questions from our online crew? Comments? All good? Make sense? That makes me think uh, you mentioned several times as a rabbit or Rabbi Stark. You never find yourself in a situation. You put yourself yeah. in a situation. Good. Oh, oh let good. good. Let, me, let me elaborate. Sandrine just said, the today's class reminded her of what the Rebbe, Lubavitcher Rebbe, told Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. When he said, you know, in the situation that I find myself, he was in, he was in university, and, he, and the Rebbe said, what are you doing for Jewish life on campus? And he said, well, in the situation that I find myself in, or circumstances I find myself in, the Rebbe cut him off and said, no one finds themselves in circumstances. You create your circumstances. And I think that's a beautiful, that's, that's very beautiful and powerful. And that is perfect takeaway for today's class. We create our, it's scary because the responsibility is real, but we create our environment. We create our circumstances. So let's take it seriously and let's, let's create good things. This is, the message is not a negative message. The message is a positive message. There's incredible power that's in our hands. Let's use the power. Let's wield the power wisely. All right. Yes, Donna. So I know the concept, we've discussed it a lot, that even challenges result in a better right. good for us personally. But in those moments, you know, it's hard to it's hard to see beyond and this and that. So what is the Rebbe's wisdom in those moments of the challenges so we can go through it to see the, the opposite? That's, that's the big question. That's a big question, right? The question that Don is asking is, so what do we do when we, when we encounter the non-obvious good flow of energy from above, right? What do we do? And we know, we believe, we have faith that ultimately somehow this is for the good. This is, I can grow from this, become stronger from this, but how do we navigate? I think, I think look, that's a, it's a big topic and it's something that we bring up time to time in class, but maybe we need to have a, a designated conversation about it. But I will say, just on one foot, just very quickly, that the core of that is faith and trust that it's coming from Hashem. And that there is something that I can learn and grow from in this experience. Because if I don't believe that, then it could be crushing. Right? If I don't believe that there is light at the end of this tunnel, that there is a silver lining in this cloud, if I don't believe that that's possible, then it could be very crushing. But when I believe... And not just, you know, I think I believe, but I truly believe, I truly trust that this is 
for the good, that's powerful. That's a game changer. Then I'll find it. I will find it. It's not going to be easy, but I'll find it. Plus, you also said in the past, we can't just pull that up at the time. It has to be. It's, um, it's a product. It's, this is the benefit of a lot of work in the realm of faith and trust and divine consciousness, like building our divine consciousness, seeing God in our lives. It's very hard to find God in the challenge if we didn't find God on, you know, when things were going okay. That's, that's the thing. That's the rub. It's like you, everyone is looking for God in the challenge, when challenges hit, God forbid. But it's, it's hard. You can, what suddenly we're going to call upon God, like, oh, I believe in God. I know this is for good. It's, it's going it, it, to, that's almost the benefit of, that emuna, that, that, that training, that day in and day out. And that's something we've been talking about at DPP a lot, how that, that daily work is, um, is very beneficial in our lives. You know, people say, like, what's, what's the role of religion? It's, I mean, it's, there's a benefit. There are benefits to having that faith. Yeah. Okay, good. All right. We'll, we'll sign off. It's great to see everybody. Have a wonderful week, Shavuot Tov. And uh, let's thank you. Thank you, David. Um, it's great to see you, Alex and David and Donna and Tony and Luann and Yaakov and Joy and Fran and Mariana. Welcome. It's great to see you all. Shavuot Tov. And um, it's almost uh, Chodesh Tov. Not this week, but next week. Yavrosh Chodesh Elul. Powerful. Powerful. A lot to talk about. Next week, very special class. Very special Elul class. I believe next Sunday will be Rosh Chodesh El, which is a very special day, which we'll talk about. All right. We'll see you guys. Take care. You know what?